Temple University of South Carolina, this is Science Never Sleeps, where we explore the science, people, and stories behind the scenes of biomedical research happening at MUSC. I'm your host, Gwen Bushy. Take a moment to think about the last time you had an injury you could see. Maybe it was a scratch or a scrape on your arm or leg, or even a cut on your finger. You probably knew what would happen next. Once the bleeding was under control, you expected a scab to form and maybe wondered if you'd end up with a scar. At the center of this healing process was a cell called a fibroblast. Fibroblasts are the most common type of cell found in connective tissue, and they play an important role in healing wounds by secreting collagen proteins that repair tissue. But sometimes these fibroblasts become confused about what they should be doing, leading to a condition called fibrosis. Researchers don't fully understand why fibrosis occurs, but it leads to organs or tissues developing excessive fibrous tissue, which can interfere with multiple organs, like lungs, heart, liver, skin, kidneys, and eyes, ultimately leading to loss of organ function. Inflammation or fibrosis play a role in several diseases, including lupus, cystic fibrosis, and scleroderma. There are currently no FDA-approved drugs that can halt the progression of fibrosis or reverse it, making it an essential area of focus for research. In this episode of Science Never Sleeps, Dr. Carol Fagali Bostwick joins us to discuss scleroderma and fibrosis and her research to find treatments and possible cures. Dr. Fagali Bostwick is a distinguished university professor in the Division of Rheumatology and Clinical Immunology at MUSC, and she's the Kitty Trask Holt and Smart State Endowed Chair. Dr. Fagali Bostwick's research interests focus on fibrosis and accompanying disorders such as systemic sclerosis and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. In addition to research, her efforts include mentoring junior investigators in patient-oriented research and directing the Center for the Advancement, Retention, and Recruitment of Women. She also serves as the Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of the National Scleroderma Foundation. Stay with us. Dr. Fagali Bostwick, thank you so much for joining us on Science Never Sleeps. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start today by talking about what is fibrosis. A simple way of thinking about fibrosis is to think of the tissues that affect thickening. So fibrosis is excess production of what we call extracellular molecules, such as, for example, collagen, a common one that a lot of people know what collagen is uh, these days. But when cells in the body start to make too much of these molecules, and stop being able to break them down and clear them to keep normal levels of them, that's when fibrosis happens. And as a result, whatever tissue or organ is affected becomes thickened and stiff. And how many people are impacted by this disease? Really, a lot of people are impacted because fibrosis can affect nearly any organ in the body. Um, and it is a, a fairly advanced complication of many different diseases. Um, Dr. Thomas Wynn, at the, who was at the NIH, um, had reported at one point that fibrosis results in 45% of deaths in the developed world. So that's a significant number. So you mentioned that 
fibrosis affects many different types of organs. What what are some examples of those organs, and how does it how do we see fibrosis when when those organs are affected? So fibrosis can affect different organs and is a result of different diseases. So for example, if you think of the lung, fibrosis can affect the lung, but it's not one disease. Um, the lung can be impacted by fibrosis in diseases such as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or systemic sclerosis, which we call scleroderma. You know, the diseases we study um, you can have fibrosis around the airways in the lung in something as common as asthma, but you can also have fibrosis in the kidneys. For example, those who are diabetic can have fibrosis in their kidneys. Uh, you can have fibrosis in the liver as a result of different things, whether it's alcoholic liver disease or hepatitis C-induced liver fibrosis. So there are a lot of different causes uh, of fibrosis in each organ and the organ that is affected is usually affected as a result of one, uh, one of numerous diseases that can cause fibrosis. So as a researcher, does the fact that fibrosis can affect different organs make it more challenging to research, or does it open up more opportunity to understand what's happening? That's a great question. I would say probably both. The challenges come from finding mechanisms and pathways that are abnormal in fibrosis that are affected similarly in different organs. So you can find a common or shared feature of fibrosis in different organs. So that's where some of the challenges are in the research leading to a better understanding of what's happening in fibrosis and what causes it and how can we change it and change the outcomes. The opportunities are exactly the same. If you find a pathway or a therapy that affects mechanisms in more than one organ, now you have something that's potentially of benefit to so many people with so many different diseases. We understand that fibrosis affects a lot of different parts of the body, so then I would imagine that makes treating it quite complicated because of the, the different areas where you would see it. What are some of the more traditional existing treatments for this? We really don't have any effective treatments for fibrosis. We really don't have any FDA-approved drugs yet that can either stop the progression of fibrosis or reverse it. So what's available out there that's FDA-approved, for example, for lung fibrosis, are treatments that slow down the progression of fibrosis. So the fibrosis continues, but at a much slower rate. Um, but we really don't have anything out there that we consider curative or re reversing fibrosis. So this makes this particular area of study a really important one because there's not much out there for patients who are experiencing this. Exactly. For your research specifically, what, what type of uh, fibrosis do you investigate? What are you most interested in? So my lab has focused over the past more than two decades um, on studying fibrosis across two organs, the lungs and the skin. And the reason for that is one of the diseases we focus on is systemic sclerosis, also called scleroderma, which is unique in that patients with scleroderma can have fibrosis in multiple different organs. So for example, uh, Individuals who have hepatitis C-induced liver fibrosis have fibrosis restricted to the liver. Uh, those who have asthma have fibrosis restricted to the airways and the lungs. 
But in scleroderma, the patients have fibrosis of the skin, of the lungs, of the kidneys, of the GI tract, of the heart. Um, so they have multiple organs affected. And as a result, we've been looking at two of those organs, lungs and skin, because they're the more readily studied organs compared to, for example, the GI tract for us. Because we figure if we can find shared features of skin and lung fibrosis, then those features are likely to also be relevant for other organs like the liver, like the kidneys, like the GI tract, like the heart. So that's a space where some specialization in looking at the specific organs could have ramifications for other organs in the future rather than trying to do a lot of study of a lot of different systems. Exactly. So looking at fibrosis across organs I think is critical so that we can identify ways of um, improving the fibrosis for patients with a variety of diseases and not be one disease-centric or one organ-centric. And I think it's interesting that we might hear about some diseases that we don't realize are linked to um, fibrosis. So you mentioned scleroderma earlier, but also in some of my research I was, I was reading about liver cirrhosis. And so we think about liver cirrhosis and the things that that's connected to, um, but the, the precursor to cirrhosis is the fibrosis of the liver, correct? Correct. Cirrhosis and fibrosis. Right. Which, which is, really speaks to inflammation as well. So many of the diseases where we see fibrosis are linked to inflammation in the body. So can you talk a little bit about the role of inflammation in fibrosis and how, how it impacts the patient? In some of the diseases where fibrosis occurs as the disease progresses or advances to later stages, often the earlier phases of the disease are characterized by inflammation. So for example, in scleroderma, often patients have a lot of inflammation in their lungs and that can be there for years before they develop the more permanent fibrosis um, that once settled it usually is not resolved, uh, certainly not easily. So often inflammation precedes fibrosis occurring. Now inflammation has been a little bit controversial in some of the diseases like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. There are sort of two camps in the field, those who believe inflammation occurs and those who don't. But there's a lot of scientific evidence suggesting that some form of inflammation does happen in the earlier phases of, of these diseases. The fibrosis comes from a place of the body trying to heal itself. That's the mechanism that's being triggered. But in the case of fibrosis, something goes wrong and the healing happens too much and then it becomes a negative thing. So the, the inflammation existing really is sort of what the fibrosis is in response to, right? We're triggering this healing mechanism within the body that somehow goes awry. You're absolutely right. And actually a lot of people refer to fibrosis as uncontrolled wound healing because the mechanisms that occur in normal wound healing or following injury of some sort, not just injury to the skin, but uh, injury to the lung um, and other organs, the organ starts to heal itself, but something goes wrong and the healing process becomes uncontrolled. 
And actually, many of the factors produced by the immune cells that are involved in inflammation are factors that we know experimentally in the lab can trigger fibrosis in the cells that we study, in the models we study, things such as interleukin-6 that's made by the immune cells during inflammation or transforming growth factor beta, we call TGF-beta, those we actually use in the lab to trigger fibrosis in the cells. So clearly the products, what we call the, the hormones of the immune system that are produced during inflammation are capable of initiating a fibrotic response. So tell us a little bit more about the diseases and the organs that you specifically study uh, and investigate in your research. The primary disease that my lab focuses on is systemic sclerosis or scleroderma, mostly because it is a prototypic disease. As, as we discussed a little earlier, in scleroderma, multiple organs are affected. So that makes it the ideal disease to study fibrosis across organs. But we also study other conditions like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that affects the lungs primarily um, because there are similarities across diseases that have fibrosis in the same organs. So scleroderma has fibrosis of the lungs. IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, has fibrosis of the lungs. And although the fibrosis is not 100% exactly the same, there are similarities between the two diseases and there are differences obviously as well. Is scleroderma the same in everyone, and does that, whether it is or not, does that make your research more challenging? It is not the same in everyone. It's actually very heterogeneous. Scleroderma is very different, and sometimes people say that no two patients are alike. That's how different it can be. The extent of involvement of the skin can vary a lot. The rate of progression can vary a lot which internal organ is affected can vary a lot. Some people may have lung fibrosis, but not kidney. Others may have kidney, but not lung fibrosis. So it varies a lot from patient to patient. And we're trying to understand why that is. In other words, is it dependent on what the trigger is that says which form or how severe your disease is gonna be? Is it susceptibility based on how prone you are to getting it that determines that? We do know that scleroderma is much more common in women than in men. However, when men get it, they have a tendency to have worse or more severe disease. We also know that both Caucasians and African-Americans and Hispanics and other ethnicities get scleroderma. But the research has shown that African-Americans have more severe scleroderma than others. So we're trying to understand that. So one of the next steps in my lab has been to try and understand in the setting of lung fibrosis in scleroderma, what is the difference between the lung phenotype, what's happening in the lung at the molecular level in patients who are African-American as compared to patients who are Caucasian? Do we need one therapy that's a one-size-fits-all that will positively impact the outcome of all patients, regardless of how different they are, whether they have mild disease or more severe disease? Or do we need to consider the form of the disease and the severity of the disease and its rate of progression and ensure that ultimately therapies are developed specifically for each subset of patients? So it's important to understand that, to understand why some individuals are more prone to having more severe disease than others. 
So you talked a little bit about treatment being a piece of the work that you're doing, but I would imagine that primary prevention is really also a big key because this is scleroderma, for instance, is something that someone can get down the road or, or could end up having it down the road. So what does primary prevention look like in the case of, of scleroderma or fibrosis, and how are you looking into that as well? That's an excellent question. We know that there are likely to be acquired changes or environmental triggers that cause scleroderma, at least in some people. We don't really know what all those triggers are, if you have been identified, but those same triggers don't cause scleroderma and everyone exposed to them. So there's something that makes some people more susceptible than others. So for me, prevention is figuring out who are the individuals who are more susceptible to developing scleroderma? What are the triggers that cause scleroderma? And then prevention comes with knowing individuals who are susceptible can avoid those triggers, or once a therapy is developed, it is used very early on in those who are susceptible with very early signs before the disease has a chance to set in and cause what we call end-stage fibrosis, which currently is not reversible and causes loss of organ function. Fibrosis of the lung and scleroderma is currently the leading cause of death in patients because there is no treatment to reverse the fibrosis, and the only option is to get a lung transplantation, but there aren't enough donor lungs and exact matches to go around, and as a result, people die. So if we can identify those people much earlier, know they're likely to get to that stage, and know how we can prevent it, then we've prevented the burden of the illness, the, the psychological burden, the physical burden, the economic burden, we've prevented all of it, which would be the ideal place to be. What are some of the examples of environmental factors? The environmental factors that have been reported are somewhat different for different organs. I can give you examples. Uh, in the liver, we know hepatitis C, a viral infection, can ultimately lead to liver fibrosis, liver cirrhosis. In the lung, we know historically that coal miners who are exposed to silica dust um, developed a form of lung fibrosis. So that's an environmental factor. But we're also constantly learning about new triggers that we were not aware of. And the last two years have been a great example of that because there's data now suggesting that individuals who were very ill, critically ill with COVID-19 and recovered have now evidence of lung fibrosis. So there's another viral etiology linked to ultimately the development of lung fibrosis. So speaking of your research, you are a pioneer because you created a way of doing your, your investigations in an organ culture system, which was ex vivo. So for our non-researcher our non listeners, that means that it takes place outside of an organism. So it's not in an animal or it's not in a human. Tell us about that and, and how that came about, because I just think it's so fascinating and so incredible that you came up with this system that's now being used and referenced by other other people in the field as well, right? Right. Um, about, I want to say about 20 years ago, 
um, we were doing research focusing on genes that trigger fibrosis. And the models that we have available for at least scleroderma and IPF are not good, the mouse models. Um, we don't have a model that truly recapitulates what you see in the human disease. We haven't been able to find that model. And also, I've always had an interest in developing therapies. And it is known that most of the molecules that are very effective at curing diseases in mice fail in human trials because humans are different than mice. So I was interested in knowing that the research that I do ultimately is going to be applicable to the human disease, but also that molecules that we may test that may be antifibrotic, you know, potential future therapies, are likely to work in humans, uh, not just in mice. So at the time, I had a colleague who was getting human skin that was discarded from plastic surgery and using it for um, for her immunology research, so it was a different kind of research. So I asked her if I could have some to try. My interest was if I take human skin as an organ, put it in a dish in the lab, and give it the nutrients that it needs and put it at body temperature, and if I introduce the genes we identified as genes that can trigger fibrosis or the proteins, can I cause fibrosis in this human skin? And human skin is easy in a way to study for us because you can measure fibrosis by the extent of thickness of the skin. Because as the skin gets thicker and more fibrotic, you can measure that thickness, literally. Mm -hmm. So I tried that and it worked. Um, the protein we initially introduced into the human skin caused a beautiful fibrotic phenotype. So as a result, we optimized the model, you know, working with what are the optimal time points, what are the optimal concentrations? How long can we keep the skin relatively healthy in the setting of the lab? Uh, things along those lines. And since then, we've used this model in multiple publications and multiple projects, mostly to show that our research is relevant and applicable to human tissues and thus ultimately the human disease. So in a way, it de-risks a little bit the therapies that you're developing because you know they work in a human tissue and not just in mice and not just in cells cultured on plastic in the lab. Right, which is really incredible that you have that you found that model because I would imagine there are lots of of biomedical research questions that we wish could be answered straight into into a human model or you know preferably outside of a, a human model outside of a human to get exactly to what you're talking about to speed up the process of investigation exactly and there's a there's a lot of interest now in what we call organoids where various researchers various labs are taking isolating separately the different cell types in an organ or a tissue such as the skin so maybe isolating the keratinocytes, isolating the fibroblasts, we study different areas of the skin, but then taking those cells and mixing them together in a dish um, with maybe some collagen around to give them something to stick to, and calling that an organoid to test um, in a human, somewhat in a human model. But for me, the skin was already assembled. It's beautiful as it is. It has all the components that you would imagine you would have in any human, right? So it seemed like the more appropriate way to go um, and simpler technically as well. 
And it's worked. And and the skin is one of the organ systems of um, that you would study in the diseases that you that you study. So it makes total sense that, that that's where you would land with that. So I, I love that. So what do you find most exciting about your research? What's your favorite aspect of it or or maybe even a favorite story of, of your research over the years? The fact that no two days are alike and that discoveries, some of the most exciting discoveries are accidental. So for example, our lab has been developing this peptide, which is a short stretch of amino acids or a part of a protein as a treatment for fibrosis. But when we were when we discovered it, it was a completely accidental discovery. We were actually working on these factors we identified that cause fibrosis, and we were trying to figure out how they did it. So if you add a protein that causes fibrosis, what are things after that step downstream of it that are changing? What is it? What genes is it turning on? What genes is it turning off? And are those genes, when it turns it on, the way that it causes fibrosis, right? The mechanism or what mediates that process. And while we were doing that, we stumbled on this peptide that at the beginning we thought that's what it was doing. It was mediating the pro-fibrotic response of a factor we identified as a fibrotic factor. And we took it and we went to test it on its own to see if you add it on its own to cells or a human skin in the organ culture we do, will that peptide also cause fibrosis? And to our surprise, it had the total opposite effect. So for me, what's exciting in research is having that prepared mind. Like Louis Pasteur said, chance only favors the prepared mind. And it's having that prepared mind because some of the best discoveries in science in general, not just medical research, but science in general, happen accidentally. Yeah, I love accidental discovery. We've talked about that a little bit so far on Science Never Sleeps, and I think that's really one of the the big takeaways for for our audience from researchers is that um, you know discovery is never planned, right? It happens just through the diligent work of researchers who are asking a question or having a hypothesis or having a thought about what they they think and then running that down and seeing where does it go and sometimes it can land in somewhere that you completely didn't expect exactly and the fun part of research too is I see research like a puzzle and every time we generate new pieces of data you're adding a piece to the puzzle to be able to get a clear picture of what is happening so having the new data all the time and looking at it and thinking, what does it mean? How could we take it to the next step and the next level? So there's a lot of problem solving in research as well, which makes it more interesting and more enjoyable, obviously. So I, th- I think that's a really great segue to my next question, which is about connecting basic research to clinical work. And I feel like the work you're doing is a really great example of that. Can you speak to the importance of that connection and you know, sort of how, how you feel about what that process looks like? 
Basic research always impacts clinical work because the discoveries you make at the bench ultimately lead to identifying factors that trigger cause an illness that can then be targeted to impact the clinical outcomes. Um, it can lead to the discoveries, like in our case of this peptide that's antifibrotic, so potential therapies that could be developed to change how you take care of patients with that particular disease. So I feel like basic research and clinical um, work are impacted by each other. You can start with the clinical observations that this disease occurs and it's there's not much out there in the literature about why it occurs and then decide to take it to the bench and try and understand what's happening in it. And you can start from the bench side where you make an observation that ultimately may change how you treat patients or it may change how you stratify patients for clinical trials, knowing that patients with this particular protein in their blood are gonna respond better than others, so they can be treated with this drug, but then the other group that doesn't respond as well needs another drug de developed that would be more effective in them. So in a way, it's, it's a marriage, right? It's, you cooperate, you help each other, leads in the clinical realm um, are insights for the basic research and leads generated in basic research can inform clinical work. Now that you've discovered this peptide, this part of a protein that you talked about, what is the journey of that discovery now? What happens next? I didn't realize when I first came across the peptide what is involved in developing any product to get to the humans at the end but there's quite a bit involved. So we've done a lot of the preclinical testing. So you wanna to test to look for efficacy. You wanna test in different models, um, under different conditions. And then once you do that, there's a lot more that has to be done. That's why drug development takes so long. Just examples of what needs to be done, you gotta check stability of the molecule. How stable is it under different conditions, different temperatures? What is it soluble in? if you're gonna administer it to patients? Is it gonna be in capsules? Is it gonna be in tablets? Is it gonna be injected? Um, is it gonna be oral? You gotta consider that. You gotta consider potential toxicity. So you have to do all the earlier toxicity studies looking as you increase the doses of it, let's say in mice, do you see any evidence of toxicity through blood work, through looking at the organs, different aspects of it? So there's quite a bit that needs to be done before you can even consider going to the FDA for approval to start a safety trial, phase one trial in humans. And all that testing takes time and for a good reason, because when you get to the humans, you wanna know that the molecule that you have, the drug you're gonna administer, is gonna be safe, that you're not gonna cause harm, you're not gonna cause people to have horrible side effects. So it's critical testing that really should be done and I appreciate why it needs to be done, but it does take time and it does take quite a bit of money as well. And so as far as the testing side of it, is that where you continue to look for the research dollars to support the testing because your team is also investigating that side of it as well? We're doing some of that. So we're investigating some of the aspects of all the testing that's required, but a lot of it is beyond the funding that an academic lab can have. And that's why it's essential to partner with industry who would have the resources 
to do all the necessary testing and take it to the next level because it's the type of funding that's difficult to get through grants um, and it's actually substantial. So it's a very important to have that partnership at the end. And I think that's a great segue to talk about your work with the National Scleroderma Foundation because that's a mechanism that can really bring attention to this issue and I would imagine also connect funding to places where it can make the most difference, where maybe there are those funding gaps. Can you talk a little bit about your work with the foundation and sort of what you guys are trying to accomplish there? Right. The National Scleroderma Foundation is a unique organization because its mission involves support for the patients and their families and their caregivers. It involves education about the disease, increasing awareness about the disease, advocacy to ensure there's enough funding at NIH and other places to fund research on the disease. But it also includes funding research directly. So the National Scleroderma Foundation does have research grants. And I got involved many years ago because I wanted to make an impact more than what I could do in doing research at the bench. I wanted to engage with the patients, and I wanted to be able to communicate with the patients, to give them hope that there is research happening on scleroderma, that we are making discoveries, we are making progress, we are moving forward. So I got involved for that reason. So I'm currently the vice chair of the board of directors of the National Scleroderma Foundation. I also oversee the research program. Um, just over the past year, the Scleroderma Foundation used to award grants in the amount of about a million dollars a year. And just over the past year, we were able to increase it to $2.7 million a year, mm. which makes a huge difference for investigators, right. especially the junior investigators who are early in their career stage, who need just to get started, something to give them the boost to generate the early data that they need to write the bigger grants to places like the NIH. So I think the National Scleroderma Foundation has actually been critical in launching the careers of most of the individuals that we now consider experts in the scleroderma field and senior leaders in the scleroderma field. They started with that launch of their career with their first National Scleroderma Foundation grant. And you really have a, a soft spot for junior investigators and for mentoring. I do. That is definitely a soft spot. It's one of my passions, one of my passions. Um, my career path was not easy. Um, I succeeded, I hope, um, continued to you know, work towards success. But I always think, what have I learned along the way and how can I pass it along to those earlier in their career stages to save them the time from the mistakes that I made that could save them time from the tips that I picked up along the way, I could share that and they could learn it earlier and benefit from it earlier. So I've always had this passion for supporting the careers of junior investigators. Because of that, I've been very focused through the National Scleroderma Foundation on providing funding for what we call early investigators or new investigators, but also launched a year ago a pre-doctoral award for graduate students who are doing uh, research on scleroderma just to start supporting them and encouraging them at an even earlier stage of their career because it's important to to nurture this next generation. We need the pipeline of researchers. We don't have enough researchers in the U.S. 
we have fewer people engaged in academic research because it's hard. You have to struggle, you have to get grants, a lot of grants get rejected, manuscripts get rejected. Ultimately, perseverance helps you succeed, but we need to encourage more junior investigators to get into the field and show them how exciting it can be and how much fun really research is, but also give them the support and the little push that they need to help them succeed and to, to just boost a little bit their career to help them get there so they can see that there is a path forward for them. Dr. Fagali Boswick, thank you so much for joining us on Science Never Sleeps. Thank you for having me. We've been talking to Dr. Carol Fagali Bostwick about fibrosis and her research in the future of treatment for patients. You can find out more about the research happening at MUSC by visiting research.musc.edu. Have an idea for a future episode? Send us an email at scienceneversleeps at musc.edu. Science Never Sleeps is produced by the Office of the Vice President for Research at the Medical University of South Carolina. Special thanks to Karen Dwayry in the MUSC College of Graduate Study Science Writing Program for scripting support, as well as the Office of Instructional Technology and Faculty Resources for production support on this episode. Mm-hmm.